0: Let's have a word of prayer, shall we? Almighty God, in you we live, we move, we have our very being. In you we find our highest good and our deepest joys. In you we find the purpose of life. In you we find forgiveness. In you we find courage and strength. In you we find correction. In you, we find all that we need to find because you are the source of all. We remember these things about you then as we once again open your word, as we learn from the story of your people, as we seek to find wisdom for our lives today and then strength to live by that wisdom, as we discuss the truth about you that is revealed in Scripture. Come and be with us, Lord because you have promised that you would be, that you always are. All this we pray in Jesus. Amen. All right, who remembers what book of the Bible we're studying? (laughs) There's something about waking up after Christmas. Oh, my heavens, where am I? What's going on? We're in the book of Exodus. We're talking about that great story of God's liberation of the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, liberation from slavery, from no hope, from no life, to the possibility of hope and life. We're talking about their escape from Egypt, and now the folks are, are traveling around. We say wandering in the wilderness. In a sense, that word wandering is not the right word because God wasn't wandering. God knew where the people were, even though the people didn't know what was coming. So the people are wandering in the wilderness, and where we last left the story, right, where we last left the story was that Israel was hungry and Israel was thirsty, and so God gave food and water to the Israelite people. The gift of manna, in particular, is what we remember. So I want us to think of the story in this way a little bit before we start reading uh, today's passages. Um, In a sense, you get the feeling that that the people of Israel uh, had this idea that once they got out of Egypt, once they had found freedom, that everything would be okay. Uh, And yet that's not what happened, right? Once they got out of Egypt, then they still had to deal with Pharaoh who came after them. They dealt with Pharaoh and his armies, and then they went out into the wilderness, and they had to deal with more problems. How many of you are no longer dealing with any problems in life. Some of you have been around for 800 years. Surely by now, you've, there are no problems in life, right? Is there anyone here who has zero problems, zero issues, zero things to deal with? If there are, you need help. Uh, <laughs> right? All of life, all of life, is a matter of dealing with issues and problems. That's not all there is to life, but there are always issues and problems in life. And so last time we met, Israel's problem was food and water. And today we're going to encounter some new problems. That's what we're going to deal with, as well as a few other things. So let's pick up the story. Chapter 17, beginning with verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some men for us and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the sun set. And Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a reminder in a book and recite it in the hearing of Joshua. I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, A hand upon the banner of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Okay. There's a ton in here. (laughs) Uh, and, And there is stuff in here that takes us directly into the conversation about what is going on in Israel slash Palestine today. Uh, and so um, I want to touch on that. We will touch on that. Uh, and then we also have a lot more to talk about. So let's start here. Um, Amalek. Uh, sometimes uh, you have uh, a description. It sounds like there's this guy named Amalek, right? Right. Uh, and, and, and we wonder, well, why is one person a problem for, for all of these folks? Well, Amalek is probably the name of uh, a name like Abraham, uh, the, the original guy that, that, that was the father, if you will, of the tribe of Amalek. Amalek is a way to refer to an individual, but, but here it refers to a tribe. Israel is wandering in the wilderness But just because it's the wilderness doesn't mean there aren't people there. Everywhere Israel goes, Israel will encounter people. And that's kind of a human problem, isn't it? Uh, Everywhere you go, you're going to run into people. And that's where the problems start. (laughs) Right? Even, even, Even if you go someplace to try to get away from people. Where are you going to go to get away from people? You can't. People getting along with people is an issue. It's an issue in scripture. It's an issue in life. So Amalek comes and apparently Amalek, the tribe, is not too happy to see another tribe, another group of people encroaching on their territory, right? Encroaching on their territory. What are we going to do about that, right? This is a human problem. How many of you have uh, lived in the same house in the neighborhood for a few years and your neighbors who you loved sold their house and you wondered about the family that was moving in next door? Were you going to like them or not? Have you ever had that happen to you? Okay. How many of you have been the family that was moving in and all of your neighbors wondered about you, right? That's just the, yeah, there we go. There we go. That's part of what is happening here. So clearly there is conflict. We don't know the nature of that conflict, but we can fill in some of the blanks. There's conflict between the tribe of Israel or the tribes and the tribe of Amalek. So Moses says to Joshua, raise an army, choose some men, and go fight with Amalek. Joshua, later on, will become extremely important in the story of Israel, right? Those of you who have read ahead in the book or read the book before will remember that there, Joshua uh, gets a whole book of the Bible named after him, right? The book of Joshua. Moses doesn't get a, a book named after him. Abraham doesn't get a book named after him, but But Joshua gets a book named after him. Joshua will become Moses' great general, right? That's Joshua's gift. And Joshua will be the one who will take the people across the Jordan River and into the Holy Land, but that's going to come later. So Joshua's going to raise an army and go fight, and Moses is going to go stand on the hill, and he's going to hold up the staff, and Aaron is going to go with him, and and Hur is going to go with him, and the battle is going to be engaged, okay? Moses is going to hold up the staff. You remember the staff? Moses' rod, right? It's the the one that turns into a snake and eats up all the other little snakes of of Pharaoh's uh, magicians. It's the staff that Moses strikes the Nile River with and the river turns red, all that stuff. Some people look at this as if the staff is this magic wand. It's like Harry Potter's wand, right? Right? Uh, It's magic. The, the wood itself of the staff has magical powers and magical properties. There are still people today who believe in the magical power and properties of physical substances, right? Um, if you've got a four-leaf clover with you, you're going to be protected. Or if you have a horseshoe hanging over your door, or if you have a crystal hanging around your neck. We invest magical power in physical things all the time. And there's a little sense of that here, right? But there's obviously more going on because what the people of God would eventually learn is that nothing physical has magical power. Who has power? God, God. The staff is a symbol of the power of God that is put into Moses' hands. We still use staffs, by the way, right? Right? How many of you uh, ever performed in a marching band? Anybody here ever march in a band? Okay, a couple of you have. Was anybody here ever a drum major? Right? Usually the guy with the big hat and he prances around with this stick in his hand. Okay, that's a staff, right? Anybody here ever been crowned the king or queen of something? Oh, wow, yeah, we got a whole bunch of royalty here. That's fantastic, right? 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 When, when, uh, when Charles Philip Arthur George was crowned the king of England, he was given a scepter, a staff. So this is a common thing for people to use this rod that they hold as a symbol of authority, as a symbol of power. I happen to think that it, and, and I haven't researched this. This is my thought. Somebody, please research it now on Google, on your phone. But, but I think it comes from the fact that, uh, that human beings discovered that whoever had the biggest staff could whop more people and, and, and knock them out than somebody with a smaller staff. And so the staff became a, a symbol of power, a symbol of authority. That's what I happen to think. I don't know if that's true or not, so, but that's okay. Um, so Moses, when he holds the staff up, things go well in the battle. When his arm gets tired and, and the staff lowers, things don't go well. Some people say, well, that's because of the power of the staff. He had to hold it up so it could you know, shoot its magic rays out to the army of of the Israelites, right? Well, no, that's not what that's about. The staff is a symbol of God's power that the people had come to trust. It's the same staff that Moses struck the rock with to get water for the people. So when when the army sees the staff, they remember that God is with them. When they don't see the staff, they forget that God is with them, right? Remember that wonderful scene uh, where Mel Gibson, the patriot, picks up the flag and turns around the retreating colonial army that 's fighting against the evil British and he leads them forward to to win the battle. Do you remember that scene that 's a staff that 's a symbol that 's a sign right so that 's what 's going on here notice notice um, that this, uh, this passage says that Israel defeats Amalek with the sword. Did people die in this battle? Probably so. Some of the Amalekites, some of the Israelites, if you will, right? This is the only instance in the book of Exodus where the people of Israel actually physically fight a battle with someone else. It's the only time. Remember when the people left Egypt? They asked the Egyptian people to give them uh, gold and silver and food and clothes and iPads and iPhones and swords and all kinds of things, right? This is the only time that they actually use those weapons. Every other time when there's a threat, when there's a danger, God fights directly for them, right? The people go through the Red Sea and God has the water destroy the Egyptian army. The people here must participate in God's plan to save them. That's part of the story here. God said, God doesn't say to Moses, you guys just run over there and hide on the side of the hill and I'll make the mountain fall down upon the Amalekites. God doesn't say that. God says, you pick up what I have given you, what has been provided for you, and you use it to defend yourselves. Here's a story about how we are expected to live in the world. Sometimes we would say God fights our battles for us. Sometimes God does things for us that we simply cannot do for ourselves. But other times, God expects us to do something, right? This is, I hadn't thought about this until just now. This is the famous uh, story of two boats and a helicopter. Do you remember that story? Some of you remember that story, right? Uh, The flood waters are rising and uh, a guy goes to the top of his roof uh, and and the waters are rising and threatening to wash him off of his roof where he's going to drown. And a guy comes along in a boat and says, get into the boat. And the guy says, no, God's going to save me. And the water keeps rising and it's up here to the guy now, but he's still hanging onto the roof and a bigger boat comes and says, get into the boat. And the guy says, no, God's going to save me. And then the water comes up to here and a helicopter appears overhead and drops a ladder down and says, grab onto the ladder, we'll save you. And the guy says, no, God's going to save me. And the water comes up to here and the guy washes away and he drowns and he gets to the pearly gates and he says, God, you didn't save me. And God said, I tried three times. I sent two boats and a helicopter. Right? How many of you knew that story already? It's okay if you mostly did, okay? It it is still a great story. It is still a great story, right? It should be in the Bible somewhere, right? So God expects us to use what he has already given to us to do his will, right? What are some of the things that God has given to us that help us when we use those things to accomplish his will? Can you think of anything? The first thing I think of is medicine, right? The business of being a doctor, right? Uh, There are some folks who believe that when you get sick, all you need to do is ask God to heal you, and that's it. You leave it there. Uh, I'm not one of those folks. I'm very thankful for doctors who said, oh, maybe if I take this plant and put it on this wound, the wound's going to heal a little bit better. That's what medicine is. That's really all medicine is at the, at the bottom line. But thank God that we've gotten even more sophisticated with that. So God expects us to use what he's given us in order to accomplish his will. We don't just always sit back and wait on God. But who gave us the stuff to use in the first place? God. So God is always involved in the good stuff, at least at that very fundamental level. But then we participate with God in that often. Sometimes God does for us what we simply cannot do for ourselves. Sometimes we are completely laid out. We can't lift a finger. I'm thinking particularly of the moment when we die. When we die, we can't do anything. Have you ever noticed that about a dead body? It just lies there. I've observed that before. I'm very, very smart, right? It just lies there. You can't do anything when you're dead. But who can? God. God. That's the fundamental thing that goes on. So the people use what God has given them, and then God says, you know, Moses, I want you to write in a book that I am obliterating, I'm obliterating Amalek. I will utterly blot out the remembrance of, of Amalek from under heaven. That's a great thing. God said, do that. Did that happen? No. We're talking about Amalek today, right? You can't remember the name of somebody that you met this morning, but here we are talking about Amalek. Now, Amalek will, the the tribe of Amalek will become sort of a perennial enemy of the tribe of Israel right? And eventually Amalek will be destroyed. We won't hear any more about Amalek, except we're still talking about Amalek. So there's a little bit of an irony in this passage, right? So Amalek is destroyed. Moses builds an altar and says that God has saved us from our enemy. Now, here's where Um, I I want to talk just a minute. I realize I'm not asking you many questions and asking you to get involved here, partly because I want to get through so much material. Uh, But we'll try to get through it so we have time to talk later. Um, Today, there's a war being fought, or the latest battle in a war is being fought over the existence of Israel in some sense. I realize that every single thing I say is going to be controversial and painful, okay? Okay. Get used to it. That's what life is. <laughs> um, we talk about religion and occasionally we talk about politics here because of the, those are the only two things worth talking about. Um, does God intend for the nation of Israel to inhabit a piece of property and for nobody else to live there? Does God intend for the people who resist Israel in any way, shape, or form to be obliterated, wiped out, exterminated. Is that what God intends? There are some people, and I've talked with some of those people, uh, who believe that that's what God intends. Okay? There are also people who believe that God intends for Israel to be exterminated and wiped out and no longer heard from again. Um I don't think I've ever talked with one of those people before, but I know people who have, right? And so we've got a war going on right now about that very fact. The Bible says in many different places, and here's one of the places where God says, go wipe out those people, okay? Did that happen? No, it did not. It did not. Later on in the story, Israel will come into the Holy Land. God will say, defeat your enemies, go live here and a lot of wars went on. But at no point in history are all the other people other than the Israelites exterminated. In fact, the story is not just the story about Israel inhabiting the Holy Land, but it is also a story where Israel begins to include other people in the nation of Israel, and where Israel begins to coexist peacefully with other people. That is also part of the story that is also told in the Old Testament and is also part of the history leading up to the time of Jesus. Now, I'm giving you a theological perspective from the whole of Scripture that I will defend, uh, but that some people will attack. Some people uh, believe that God still intends for the nation, a nation of Israel to live in the Holy Land and nobody else is supposed to live there. There are many Christians who think that. I think that is absolutely wrong Christian theology. That is a complete misreading of the Bible. Uh, and I'll just say it flat out clear. If you disagree with me, that's fine. I will still love you. I hope you will still love me. Most of you. There's a couple of you maybe here that would be a problem. <laughs> <But> I don't <laughs> Right? What does the, the Bible say? Not just a few passages from the Old Testament. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that Jesus came along and said that the kingdom of God is not about a physical entity on the face of the earth. It's not about a nation with physical boundaries and a king or a prime minister or a president and an army and an economy and a flag. Jesus said to Pilate, remember what Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. The church began to understand what actually many Jews understand. There is a part of Israel that understands this truth and this reality that God means to bless the whole world through Israel and to teach the whole world that a nation is not about physical boundaries and wiping everybody out who doesn't agree with you or who doesn't want you to live there. The nation of God, the people of God, is about the whole world. The whole world. And there's plenty of evidence for that idea in the Old Testament, and it it flowers and blossoms in the life of the Messiah. Now, what I've just said in no way, shape, or form justifies uh, anti-Semitism. It does not justify the murder of Jews, nor does it justify the murder of anybody. Uh, It does not take a side with anybody. It takes everybody's side. It is not a political statement about what Israel should or should not be doing with Hamas today in Gaza. It is a statement, though, of Christian theology. And we can have a long conversation more about that. Um, As I've said before publicly, um, we grieve the loss of innocent life. We grieve the fact uh, that human beings still find it necessary to fight wars with each other. Um, and 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 there's a whole lot more we can say. But does all that make sense to you? Um, as we talk about wiping out the Amalekites, it'd be very easy to substitute uh, the names here. You know, Benjamin Netanyahu calls upon his general, not named Joshua. I don't know who the head general of, of Israel is, and says, "Go wipe out, go wipe out Hamas." Okay. There's a sense of that going on here. Why? Because Hamas attacks Israel. We can go on forever with that political conversation, but let's understand that there's something bigger going on than just that, okay? If you're grieved by what I've just said, I'd love to visit with you more. But I want to acknowledge that from this particular passage. And then let's also acknowledge one further thing. Why, 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 why? Would God say to Moses, Go do battle with the Amalekites and kill them? Why would God say that? The issue is not about killing people that disagree with you, the issue is about saving God's plan to bless the whole earth. Anything that stands in the way of what God is going to do must be defeated. Ultimately, this is not a battle between two tribes who want to occupy the same territory. Ultimately, this is a cosmic battle between the purposes and plan of a good God and the purposes and plan of, we could say, the devil, we could say evil, anything that would take away, that would stop God's plan to redeem the whole world. Does that mean that sometimes people have to be killed? That apparently is the answer of human history. But the answer of Christianity is that the way God ultimately kills evil is to die himself. That's what the story of Jesus is on the cross. And all the rest of Christian theology flows out from that. God's plan is to kill anything that would kill us and kill him. And if we're killing each other, then we have to figure that out. Does that make sense to you? That's why I think the fundamental reason uh, that that sometimes Israel found it necessary to fight wars was not uh, about necessarily power or position or oil or whatever else you want to describe. It's about making sure that goodness prevails over evil. And we remember, of course, that Jesus said that we have to be very careful when we identify ourselves as the good people and other people as the evil people. That's what human beings do. Uh, We identify the other people as evil people because they don't want what's good for us. Um, And there are thousands more issues to arise out of that. So we're not going to solve all those issues, but let's just say that in this story, God's plan to save the whole world with no exclusions, God's plan to save the whole world is going to be revealed through the life of this one people and ultimately the gift of a Savior and a Messiah. That's what Christians believe. And if you have a different take on that, that's fine. I I have not been given the role of deciding what all Christians should believe, by the way. Um, And we're actually going to come to a story about that in just a minute. Let's go on with the story, and let me get to that part here. Exodus chapter 18 now, uh, first 12 verses. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law heard of all that God had done for Moses and for his people Israel, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro took her back along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been an alien in a foreign land, and the name of the other Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh jethro moses father-in-law came into the wilderness where moses was encamped at the mountain of god bringing moses sons and wife to him he sent word to moses i your father-in-law jethro am coming to you with your wife and her two sons moses went out to meet his father-in-law he bowed down and kissed him each asked after the other's welfare and they went into the tent then moses told his father-in-law all that the lord had done to pharaoh and to the egyptians for israel's sake all the hardship that had beset them on the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because he delivered the people from the Egyptians when they dealt arrogantly with them. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. Okay. Who is Jethro? Jethro is not a Hebrew. Jethro is not of the tribe of Abraham's family. Jethro is a Gentile. Here is one of many stories in the Old Testament where people who are not of the family of Abraham are brought into a good and positive relationship and even into the family, if you will. Moses is preaching the good news to Jethro, right? Long before Billy Graham existed, there was Moses preaching the good news. What is the good news? God saved us from the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro is one of the early converts, not to Christianity. We're hundreds of years before Jesus still. But Jethro is one of the people who sees and understands and believes the power and grace of this one good God. Jethro says, blessed be the Lord, blessed be your God, Yahweh, this particular God. He must be the strongest of all the gods, right? Right? Jethro was a pagan in some sense, still believing in many gods, but now he begins to see, wait, there's one God who is the God of even all the other gods, you might say. So Jethro becomes a convert. Jethro is brought into the family. All throughout the Old Testament, you're going to see people who are not Jews who are brought into the family of Judaism, into the people of God. So this Christian idea that developed from out of Jesus actually developed from, before Jesus, that God means to bring everybody into the family. Here's one case of it. Right after the Amalekites are wiped out, okay, and they weren't totally wiped out because they kept fighting, right? Right after this battle that Israel wins, here's a non-Jew who is brought into the family of the Jews, into the family of Israel. That happens over and over and over again. Now, apparently, somehow or other, uh, Moses' wife, who was not a Jew, and his two sons, who are only half of the tribe, half of their blood is from Abraham's blood. Uh, it seems like Moses sent them away, right, to live with Jethro. Um, maybe he, he sent them out of Egypt, right? Moses himself was not exactly a slave in the same way that others were a slave. We don't know, but now father-in-law is bringing them back and they are incorporated into the family. That's most of the importance of this uh, particular story, right? The family is reunited and Jethro hears the good news and other people are brought into the family. There's a very strong tradition in Judaism um, about how people who are not uh, biologically Jewish are brought into the Jewish community as God-fearers, as people who recognize the truth of God and are brought into that. That's a strong thing. And that idea eventually came to, uh, I would say, full fruition in in the life of the the Christian church when Paul and Peter argued about whether or not Jesus was Messiah for the Gentiles as well as for the Jews. And Peter was saying, oh, it's just for the Jews. But Paul was saying, no, wait, God hasn't been just for the Jews. There are all kinds of non-Jews that are brought into the story even in the Old Testament, even in our history. And so eventually Peter is converted and that's why there are Gentile Christians today. There are probably some folks in this room who have some Jewish blood in us, right? Uh, But most of us come from a Gentile history, but we are brought into the family of God. We're brought into what the church says is the new Israel, the church. If people wanna talk about differences between Judaism and Christianity, uh, that is one of the places where we have to have a conversation with our Jewish brothers and sisters, our Ju- Jewish family of, of, of the faith in some sense, right? is how we think now that the family of God is expanded and, and meant to include everyone. Does that all make sense? Um, let's keep going for a second, then we'll take some comments. Let's go to the last uh, verses of chapter 18, now starting with verse 13. The next day... Moses sat as judge for the people while the people stood around him from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone while all the people stand around you from morning until evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make known to them the statutes and instructions of God. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You will surely wear yourself out, both you and these people with you, for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now, listen to me. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. You should represent the people before God, and you should bring their cases before God. Teach them the statutes and instructions, and make known to them the way they are to go and the things they are to do. You should also... Look for able men among all the people, men who fear God, are trustworthy, and hate dishonest gain. Set such men over them as officers over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Let them sit as judges for the people at all times. Let them bring every important case to you, but decide every minor case themselves. So it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure and all these people will go to their home in peace. So Moses listened to his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men from all Israel and appointed them as heads over the people as officers over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And they judged the people at all times. Hard cases they brought to Moses, but any minor case they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went off to his own country. Okay, Um, let me me give you a disclaimer here at the very beginning um, as we talk about this passage. This is one of the passages, one of the earliest passages, if not the earliest, actually, um, that Presbyterians use uh, to claim uh, that God wants the whole world to be Presbyterian. (laughs) That may be overstating it just a little bit. (laughs) This is one of the passages uh, that that Presbyterians talk about when we talk about the idea that the way God wants us to be organized as a society, as an institution, as a church, and actually ultimately the whole of society, is for there to be a sharing of, of power and authority, a sharing of the business of running life together. We have the sense that up until this time, Moses is in some sense the dictator, the authoritarian ruler of the people. Now, Moses is a benevolent dictator, but everything is about what Moses says to do. And, and now Jethro, by the way, not a Jew, remember, right? Jethro comes and says, Moses, that's crazy. That doesn't work. He says, what you should do, Moses, is you're the one who's been hearing God's word and telling us what that word is. You should continue to do that. Later on, Israel will come to understand that other people can hear God's word too. And we have to talk about that. But you're the one now who is our primary conduit back and forth with God. You're going to teach us about God. And if there's something really huge we need to involve you, but you need to begin giving away your power, your authority, so that others can participate and so that society will work better. This is one of the passages from which Presbyterians get the idea that no single individual should have absolute power and authority. No single individual has the ability to do that. The wisdom, the time, uh, the knowledge, that all of that should be shared. There's a lot more that grows out of this, but but this is one of the stories where it begins. And so what can we take from this particular story? Number one, Israel is hearing God's word, not just through what God says directly to Moses, but what God says to Moses and to all the people, ultimately, through different means, right? Moses apparently said to the people, okay, now here's how we're going to do it. I'm going to appoint you, 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 and you. But you know what? All those people that Moses appointed, they had to agree. What if someone said, I don't want to be in charge of 10 people? Very smart person, by the way. right? I don't want to be in charge of a thousand people. Other people had to agree. Somewhere along the we get the sense that Moses, Moses just said, this is the way it will be. Well, let's be real about this. Other people had to agree, right? The community had to agree to submit to a system whereby the power and authority was shared. And that's what Presbyterians say is the way God meant the church to be organized, not that one person, should have absolute power and authority. Now, if this sounds uh, to you like it is anti-papist, it is, actually. Uh, Let me say I have huge respect for the current pope, right? And I have huge respect and love for all of my Roman Catholic family and friends, okay? This is not about anti-Catholicism per se, but it does say that the church is better off, that actually all human society is better off when we share power and authority and we use all of our gifts and skills to contribute to the good of the community. I actually think the current Pope would probably say most of that, although Um, He is a good Catholic, even though a lot of Catholics don't think he's a good Catholic. Uh, He's a good Catholic, I think, uh, also in the sense that he accepts the role as the leader of the institution. Anyhow, we can have lots of conversations about that. Um, But this is part of where the divide between uh, Protestantism and Catholicism happens. Um, And there's more to talk about there. Um, There's a lot to say about how it is that, that God's people begin to hear God's voice speaking, not just directly through God, but through other people, right? Moses listens to his father-in-law. If you want to make a big deal of the fact that it's not his mother-in-law, you can do that. <laughs> I'm not going to do that, <laughs> right? He listens to his father-in-law who has some wisdom from outside. There are some people who will say that the only book that I'm ever going to listen to that's going to tell me the truth about things is the Bible. They actually don't believe that, but they say they believe that, right? We have a lot to learn from the world around us. We have a lot to learn from people who do not necessarily follow the God that we follow, right? Uh, Do we learn the, the most important things about the deepest truths from anything other than the one true God? Maybe things can lead us there, but when it comes to the most important things, we believe in the one true God. There's a whole lot to say about that as well. Anyhow, let me just just stop there Um, because I know we've touched on some huge issues, haven't we, today, right, right? Um, Let's get a thought or a question or two here just for about four minutes worth, all right? And Terry's got the microphone. You remember how we do this, right? You talk into the mic and off we go. There we go. Yes.
1: Um, this isn't one of the profound questions, but when you were talking about uh, Moses's staff and sword, yes, my mind just, as you said, I can't remember who I met this morning, but my mind just went back <laughs> to the twenty-third psalm. Uh huh. That um, walking through the valley of shadow of death, yes. Uh, fear no thy evil. Thy rod and thy, and thy staff, staff, they, they comfort, comfort me. me. Yeah. And I, that just. Immediately popped into into my mind yeah. that it's it's kind of continuing. Um.
0: Absolutely, that is that that's absolutely beautiful, right? Twenty mm-hmm. third Psalm, of course, comes from the the pastoral thing of shepherds looking after sheep and whatnot. And the shepherd carries a big stick. Why does the shepherd carry a big stick, right? So that he can beat off the wolves so that he can reach down and rescue the, the little lambs that are stuck in places, all that stuff. God is the one who has the biggest stick of all to save us from the power of evil. Absolutely.
1: And, and it's kind of a human thing in that our 10-year-old grandson for Christmas, all he wanted was the biggest Nerf gun available
0: Okay. so, yeah. that, he,
1: so that he could have the biggest gut staff.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, and, and that's kind of the way humanity exists today, which is reality. It's kind of a sad reality, right? Um, but the people that have the biggest and best sticks win, right? I'm thinking of, um, was it Roosevelt? Speak softly and carry a big stick. Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy, Roosevelt. Teddy, Teddy yeah, not, not, not Frank, but Ted. Okay, good, yeah, wow. See, we we could keep this conversation going indefinitely. Forget about sleep. We could just keep going. It's fascinating. Yeah.
2: I am like you. I can't remember who I met this morning. <laughs> but when we were listening to the Bible reading and hearing about um, Aaron holding up Moses' hand, it mm-hmm. reminded me of one of my favorite hymns, which is Hark the Voice of Jesus Calling, which mm-hmm. basically is... You know, even if you don't have what you think is a special gift, you've mm-hmm. got what it takes to work for the Lord. Mm-hmm. And um, I I looked it up on the Internet. Oh, cool, cool. <laughs> and um, it, it basically says, even if you can't preach um, and do those sorts of things, um, you can still do what heaven demands. You can be like faithful Aaron holding up the prophet's hands. Beautiful. Which I thought was really a great.
0: Yes, poem. yes. Yeah, there's that aspect too. I, we we only skim the surface in these things, right? Moses, the great leader, has to have people around him. That that is a, a conversation about the community of faith, right? Um, I think I, I I I'll speak for Moses. I, I certainly he understands now. Maybe he didn't understand then. Um, But Moses often said to God, I'm not the guy to do this, right? Moses understood that that he was no better than anybody else. He was no different than anybody else. He had a role to play, and God brought other people around him so that that the work could be accomplished. Aaron was key in that. Joshua was key in that. Hur is key in that. That's part of what we understand about the Christian community is that every single one of us participates in and is important to accomplishing the mission of God. And there is no one with any status that's higher or lower than anybody else. And that's in this story. Thank you for sharing that. Good. Y'all are doing good. Keep going. You can write some of my sermons for me here. What else? Other questions? Other thoughts? Okay, we need to go. I know there's leftovers to finish up, right? (laughs) Okay, great. Uh, Jan Cook. Yeah, Jan will be with you next week. So that's good. Thank God for Jan Cook. Let's pray. God, thanks for being with us today. Thank you for the questions, the concerns. We ask that you would bless and be with your whole world. Uh, We're so messed up that we need you. Uh, We know that, you know that. So help us keep learning your way in the world. For Jesus' sake, amen. God bless you all.